Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Build Business Acumen podcast, where we deliver practical knowledge and powerful guidance. Here is your futuristic host, Nathaniel Skula. Exciting episode today with a gentleman that I met on a roundabout. His name is Stephen Payne, and he was riding a penny-farthing bicycle. And he's got some amazingly interesting stories because he's actually done some really quite amazing things over the past few years. And yeah, I think it should be quite a quite an interesting episode, this one. It's lovely to have you on the uh, podcast, uh, Steve. Thanks very much. So I've, I've heard you described as a gentleman adventurer. Why is that? Uh, well, I'm a member of the CHAP Society, uh, which is a, a society for eccentric Englishmen. And uh, our, our basic ethos is to, to dress well and to, um, I suppose what you would call, follow your own path. For the Champ Society, that basically means doing some pretty eccentric things. We we think of ourselves as an offshoot of Monty Python in a lot of ways. And uh, for me, that <laughs> means competing in things like the Chap Olympics as a bicycle jouster. Uh, bicycle jousting is something that carries on all around the country, but the big event is at the Chap Olympics in London every year, where you attempt to knock people off their bicycles using an umbrella. So, so the CHAP Society is something that's been in my background for quite some time. Um, about four years ago, all in a six-week period, my, my father died. I lost my job to redu- redundancy. My fiancé decided to move to London to pursue her career, and I was diagnosed with leukaemia. And although this might have scuppered some people altogether, I... I managed eventually to look at the flip side of the coin and see it as an advantage because although some fairly terrible things had happened it meant that I had a little bit of money behind me I had no ties to any particular place no ties to a job no ties to a relationship and no ties to a house because obviously we had to sell up and uh, go our separate ways and I was thinking to myself this gives me an opportunity to do or or any of those things that you've always wanted to do but couldn't do because you were always too involved with something else. So I began to think about some crazy adventures that I'd fantasised about for a number of years and I started off with a medieval pilgrimage to Canterbury dressed in authentically researched medieval clothing circa about 1400, time of Chaucer and I walked to Canterbury in... January, sleeping rough in the trees and the bushes along the way, meeting people, having a great time, and trying to use the medieval pilgrimage in the same way that they would have done in the Middle Ages, as a way of getting your head together, deciding what direction your life wants to go in, and trying to turn what was, after all, a fairly disastrous period into something 
that I could count as um, uh, as an advantage. And that's what I did. I began to do these crazy adventures, much in the way of Monty Python and um, your stereotypical English eccentric. Superb. That's really interesting. So what made you cross the Alps on a space hopper? And how did you think of it? I mean, hold on. Before I carry on, a space hopper is one of these child's toys, right? With ears yes. that you bounce on. Yeah, basically yeah. It's, a, it's a large, thick balloon uh, with a couple of ears on the top and children sit on them and they bounce along. So uh, in, in England or in Britain, they're called space hoppers. Uh, other parts of the world, they're called things like hippity hops. But yeah, basically you sit on this large ball and you grab hold of the ears and you, you bounce up and down on it. Um, the reason I decided to cross the Alps on that really came from my first trip, the trip to Canterbury. I was walking through Winchester uh, early on in what turned out to be about a 150-200 mile journey and I bumped into a homeless man. He came rushing up to me. This was on day three or day four of what turned out to be a three-week journey. He came rushing up to me with a pasty and he bought me a pasty. Hold on. For the American people out there and Canadians, a pasty... Fast food. <laughs> yeah, but it's not fast food. It's a traditional Cornish pasty. Is a traditional... Pastry case. It's a pastry, pastry. pastry case filled with meat and potatoes. Basically. Or you can get cheese. Yeah, you can get all sorts of things yeah, yeah. these days, yeah. Um, a fellow ran up to me and he said, I've seen, I've seen your write-up in the independent newspaper. He said, and uh, I bought you this pasty. Now, I didn't know this fellow. I'd never met him before. And when I asked him how much money he had, he, he only had about £3.60 in his pocket. He'd spent £2.80 of that on a pasty for a man that he didn't know. And I couldn't quite get my head around that. I was, I was trying to ask him. We sat down and we shared this pasty sitting on the floor in the middle of Winchester High Street. And I said, well, you know, why have you done this? And he said, well, you're like us. You're sleeping rough in winter and we look after each other. And he gave me advice on keeping warm, using cardboard boxes to, to, to insulate yourself against the ground, some tips on keeping dry. And uh, I began to think to myself that this journey, although it was actually designed to be a historical exploration of the medieval pilgrimage, really had started to turn into a benefit gig for homeless people. Because I really couldn't get my head around the fact that this fellow who didn't know me at all had spent half of what he had on something for me. And that took me back. And I started to look at the homelessness problem and think about it as I walked. And as I was doing that, I was meeting more homeless people, many of them ex-servicemen. Uh, for example, there was a chap who was living in a, in a basically on a park bench in the middle of Winchester, who used to be one of the RAF's top test pilots. Wow. He, he'd burnt out from stress of his job, and now he's living in a park. And, and I began to see homelessness in a different way, not just as the typical way that many people would perhaps see it, as a, as, as a bunch of people who have obviously had a hard time, some of which was their own fault, um, through perhaps addiction to various things. But basically a, an issue that many people will look away from. And I began to see the people behind the problem. And the more I looked, the more I found out. And uh, 
the whole trip then became a way of raising awareness about homelessness. I was blogging every day on Facebook as I went on my journey to Canterbury. And uh, even when I got to Canterbury, met the Archbishop and... Because um, you, sorry, to stop you, you, you wrote to the Pope, didn't you, and the Archbishop? Uh, yes, that's right, yeah. To get permission to sleep in churches along the way, is that correct? Yeah, well, nobody had done this since the Middle Ages, so I didn't know quite how cold I was going to be walking a couple of hundred miles in medieval clothing. And I thought, you know, if it's pouring with rain or if it snows, I might need to take shelter somewhere. Right. The typical place as a medieval pilgrim that you would take shelter would be a church. So I thought to myself, okay, we'll write to the Pope, we'll write to the Archbishop. And basically, if they give me permission to stop in a church, then no local vicar is going to to have a problem with that. (laughs) The Pope wrote back almost straight away. I got a letter about two weeks later from um, from from the Vatican. Uh, which was quite something. Uh, the Archbishop took a little bit longer to come back, but they both said, "Yeah, okay, we'll, we, you know, we'll we'll support this, and we'll we'll give you permission to sleep in church property if that's uh, what you need to do." By the time I got to Canterbury, I had significantly more people following me than when I'd started. When I started, I'd only just opened a Facebook account, and I had I think twelve people following me, right. probably just to find out whether I'd frozen to death yet. When I got to Canterbury, I'd had over 182,000. Comments, yeah. Yeah, yeah. From, from people all over the world. And it was getting to the point where I, I just couldn't manage that. And I began to see that, actually, there were a lot of people interested in this crazy adventure idea. And a lot of those people were interested in the homeless situation, or at least hadn't really considered the homeless situation and were interested in what I was finding out about it. Yeah. So... Um, at the end of that journey, I decided that there was obviously more of this that I could do. And the following year, I decided to recreate the journey of St. Brendan the Navigator, who was a, a fairly famous 5th century Christian missionary, coming into Great Britain for the first time and converting the, the, the late Roman, early Saxon tribes to Christianity. Right, so this was in 2017, yeah? Yes, yeah. Right. Now, St. Brendan was known as the navigator because he travelled pretty much everywhere by boat. And and I did the same thing. So my first pilgrimage was walking. My second one was actually sailing across Wales in a coracle, which is a small, round, wickerwork boat about two and a half, three feet across. And I found out exactly the same things that I'd found out on that first walk. I was bumping into people who were asking me what I was doing. You know, why is this man carrying a boat on his back? sailing down rivers, crossing two, maybe 250 miles of, of, of territory, uh, dressed in what to most people would look like something out of Star Wars, uh, an Obi-Wan Kenobi costume, but it was, <laughs> was that actually um, uh, an early medieval um, outfit that I'd, that I'd made from wool. And um, using it at the same time to raise awareness for homelessness. And it, and it kind of caught on. So last year... Having run out of ideas for medieval pilgrimages, I decided that I needed to do something else. And I was in my hometown of Chichester one day and had um, uh, made contact with a homeless chap and we were sat in a pub having a, uh, a steak and kidney pie and chips. And I asked him, what's it like in Chichester being homeless? Chichester's a fairly well-to-do area. Yeah. And he stopped for a moment and he thought about it and he said, you know what, he said, it's like... And he shook his head and he said, it's like 
crossing the Alps on a space hopper. He said, it's a completely ridiculous thing that you never think you're going to have to do. But one day you wake up and there it is right in front of you. You've just got to get on with it. And he said, and that's what homelessness is. It's a completely ridiculous way to live. It's dirty. It's uncomfortable. It's cold. And above all, it's undignified. But one day, through no fault of your own, you wake up and there it is right in front of you. You've just got to get on with it. And I thought, brilliant. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cross the Alps on a space hopper. Wow. Yeah. And that was how many miles did you did you travel on one of those? Uh, it's 122 kilometres, so about right. 80 miles. And and you did training, right, to, to manage that. You went up. Oh yeah. You went up and trained for quite a long time, didn't you? To... Yeah. You you can't just jump on a space hopper and bounce off no. into the into the distance. I'd probably fall off, to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I spent eight months training on the South Downs Way and occasional trips to Wales, and uh, I soon found out that space hoppers really don't work very well on the snow, so I knew this was going to be a summer trip for for once and not not one in the middle of winter. Right. Um, I've now got thighs like the Incredible Hulk. I mean, I'm 55, so, you know, this this kind of training was very hard work for me. Oh, yeah, it's extreme. Uh, That's extreme yeah. training. Yeah. Well, yeah. Tran- transalpine bouncing never really caught on because it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a completely stupid way of doing things. But, of course, <laughs> you know, that's what the that's what this homeless chap in Chichester said. It's a completely ridiculous thing until you're faced with it and you just have to get on with it. Yeah. yeah. So I chose a route that went over something called the Col de Lauteray Pass, which is about 7,000 feet up. Um, wow. From Bardonicchia in Italy to mm-hmm. Grenoble in France and became the first person to cross the Alps on a space hopper. Phenomenal, phenomenal. So on your on your journeys, do you raise money on, on these trips? And if so, for which charity? Uh, I don't raise money directly. What, what I discovered in my own reading about medieval charity and the way that things happened back in the 13, 14, 1500s, is that um, it was everybody's Christian duty, basically, to look after those who were in trouble. Right. The the medieval homeless problem was something that it was the church's responsibility to manage. Now, from a relatively uninformed point of view, um, we looked after people in the Middle Ages better than we do today, people who are homeless. Yeah. Today, you can actually be destitute. You can die on the streets. Yeah. You can freeze to death in the winter, yeah. die of hypothermia. In the Middle Ages, it would be everybody's duty to make sure that didn't happen, whether you applied for sanctuary in a church or whether you turned up at an abbey or whether you just went to the, the, the local town authorities. You were guaranteed... To be looked after, unless you were an outlaw and you were actively robbing people on the highway, there was a there was a sense of social responsibility in the Middle Ages that often there isn't today. Right, right. So uh, I don't I don't advocate donating money to charity. What I try to do is I try to say to people, the best idea is to actually go out and find somebody who's homeless, whether you do that deliberately or whether you just come across them in the street. And you try to help them one-to-one. Because not only then does all the money that you're going to give, however small that amount might be, all that money goes directly to the person affected. But it also means that you've got to make a social contact with them. You've got to talk to them. 
And one of the worst things about being homeless, and this has been said to me by many homeless people, is the social isolation. People will look the other way. They'll cross the street to avoid you. They'll drop some money in your hat if you're lucky, uh, but they often won't stop. And one homeless chap said to me when I stopped and talked to him that I, I was the first person that had talked to him in two weeks. He'd been sat there for two weeks and he'd not had a conversation with anybody. And that was the worst part of the situation right. that he was in. Nobody said hello. Nobody passed the time of the day. He said, I, I, I could have been mute as far as anybody knew because people just walked past, occasionally dropped me some money. And he said, and it was only other homeless people that I ever got to talk to. Right. It's interesting you should say that. I mean, I've, I've, I stop every so often and, and sort of talk to people on the street like that. And I wondered why they seemed so happy when I spoke to them. I mean, it's gen- it's not my je ne sais quoi or anything. It was <laughs> probably just because they hadn't spoken to anyone for two weeks and then I just waffle. But in Chichester, they are the churches are actually... I mean, I go to St Pancras Church and, and they're doing a lot for homeless people. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I, think, I think that in Chichester as a whole, they're doing fantastic things. But on a, on a, on a more sort of nationwide level in the UK, I think... You know, there are many, many different churches who actually do help uh, impoverished people. There are food banks in a lot of them. And I, I'm, I'm researching to learn a lot more. So if anyone's listening to this and wants to, like, drop us a link to their website, if you if you really, you know, feel strongly that your, your cause that you're raising money for is great, then drop a link and I'll pop it in the show notes, you know, because I'm always editing the website. So feel free to, uh, to just send a message. Yeah. Yeah, there are there obviously there are a lot of people helping out. Um, I mean, at one end of the scale, you've got your established large international charities, um, Oxfam, uh, Shelter, that kind of thing. Now, I could raise money to 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 contribute to what they're doing. Uh, one of my problems with that is that in the nature of things, a large organisation with an international presence has got to spend a, a fairly large percentage of everything that they they get as donations on things like IT infrastructure, pensions for their staff, heating and lighting and the buildings that they work out of. What I'm trying to advocate in my own way is a more personal one-to-one thing with people who are homeless. Right. Now, obviously, those, those companies are raising vast amounts of money, and I can't compete with that. What I'm trying to address is the more personal aspects of being homeless, the sort of immediate needs that somebody might have that don't have anything to do with food and uh, accommodation, shelter for the night. For example, I, I normally approach people and I have a chat with them first about how the day's gone, what the weather's like, uh, whether they're warm enough in the evenings, uh, where they're going perhaps. And, and this takes a bit of gumption because obviously if you approach somebody in the street, you might get a mouthful of abuse. Right. There's no guarantee that the person that you're going to be trying to talk to has has had a pretty bad day. I mean, if I was living in a shop doorway, I'd think pretty much every day was a pretty bad day. Yeah. So, so, what, there, so there are certain... Sorry to interject there. Yeah. Um, so there are certain questions that you that you think we should ask homeless people rather than other ones right because there's a special way to approach them isn't there you you were telling me the other day there's a question you should ask them like it's not how you got here but what I well forget i get what it was i never say to them how did you end up being homeless right uh, because that implies that they've ended up being homeless and never going to do anything else um 
I normally just ask them if there's anything they need that day. Now, don't get me wrong, it's, it's a great thing to buy somebody who's homeless a packet of sandwiches, a cup of coffee, because the immediate need might seem to, to the passerby to be food and drink. But I've spoken to an awful lot of homeless people and they've got a slightly different um, uh, view on it. For example, one chap said to me one, day, one morning when I said, you know, do you need anything today? And he said, actually, do you mind buying me a packet of toilet rolls? It's not a need that most people would even consider, but public toilets, even if they open fairly early, have often not got any loo roll. All right. And that's a situation which is not one that anybody really needs to be in. You know, a lot of homeless people will need to move out of shop doorways about 7 o'clock because there are people coming along and opening up the building. And if you really need to go at that time in the morning and there's no loo roll in the public toilet, then what do you do? Another chap said to me, do you mind buying me a toothbrush and a tube of toothpaste? Because he hadn't cleaned his teeth for two weeks. Now... I've done camping trips where I haven't cleaned my teeth for two days and I felt pretty rotten. Yeah. Imagine what it's like after two weeks. These are the kinds of needs that people have that probably wouldn't occur to the hundreds of people passing them in the street every day. It's great to buy somebody a chicken salad sandwich and to go up and give it to them. But have you ever considered the fact that that person might be vegetarian? Or, as one guy said to me, he said, I've got irritable bowel syndrome. At the end of the day, I've often got 10, 15 packets of sandwiches and I can't eat any of them because nobody's actually asked me what I want. They've come along and they very generously spent their money on something, but unbeknownst to them, I can't eat it. So that's why I say, perhaps say to someone, you know, what do you want? This, This guy said to me, it would be great if somebody did that because I'd say, could you get me some rice or could you get me a salad? Uh, bowl from from the local shop or another fellow said to me I don't actually like coffee he said no I get people all day buying me coffee and I always sit next to a little grating a drain and he said I have to pour pour it away he said because I I can't drink coffee right so what I'm saying is try to get to know the person if you can it's difficult in a couple of minutes when you're busy and you're on the way somewhere but always think of the fact that you know you might be buying a sandwich for the person who's gluten intolerant and can't eat it it's much better to say to them is there anything you need today right and of course there's the danger they're going to say yeah i need a house i need somewhere to live i need something big but it could be something as simple as a toothbrush yeah i mean i saw you the other day i bumped into this chat with you when we were having a coffee discussing this episode and and you bought him some boots you know and he looked so happy i mean he he you said that he had a leaky boot and you went in and yeah. you bought some from Black's, right? Black's is a, is a camping shop we have in the UK. So big shout out to Black's. We really appreciate the help. And we'd appreciate it if you share this episode as well, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I said to him, you know, do you need anything today? And he said, well, I could do with a pair of waterproof socks. Uh, and I said, well, what's up? Do your boots leak? And he showed me the boots that he had on and there was a huge hole in the bottom of, of one of them. Uh, and I said, well... Yeah, I was lucky enough that, that some of the things I've done, I've, I have actually raised some money and I did have a, a small fund and we went round to Black's and we bought him a pair of camping boots, which should last him two or three years. But that's what you get if you ask somebody what they need rather than another packet of sandwiches, which they perhaps can't eat. So, yeah. Or you don't give anything at all because you're frightened they're going to spend it on drink. Because that's another yeah. that's another conversation to, to, you know, probably best not have right now. But, 
But I, I mean, I think I've, I've been sort of helping this company in Oxford to launch this QR code reader, um, which which will enable people on the streets to actually have a bank account linked to donations. And they've launched this in Oxford. It was on the BBC, I think, last year. And I'm actually going to be doing an interview fairly soon with the founder of that. I think he's an Oxford University student or graduate. And that is launching in Chichester fairly soon. So that's going to be a really great thing. So it's a bit like the big issue without buying a rubbish magazine. Sorry, guys, but your magazine's rubbish. And, I, and, and, and you know, I came up with a brilliant idea the other day. Why don't you just go to Vogue and go to gentlemen's magazines you know all of these great magazines that are out there right if you approach them and said guys give us a page for our new episode they would do that for you no problem and then your sales would go through the roof but instead you're just producing this shabby magazine that you've been doing for years i'm sorry but someone has to say that and i know you've got an experience with that as well Stephen, because you popped in and told them face to face yeah well i've 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 bought many issues of the big issue. Many, Me too. Many copies of it. I can't remember a single time where I actually thought that was worth reading. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I read a few paragraphs about, oh, got me about a year ago, six months ago, and I thought, well, two or three of them out of the out of the thing were okay, but I really had to force myself to sort of read it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's unless homelessness is your particular cause or you're working in that kind of environment, then the big issue doesn't strike me as something that you would buy for an entertaining read. Um, it's unfortunate, because the concept is, yeah. is, is yeah. brilliant, the concept. Yes. Yeah. It just needs bringing into the, the, the century, right? I mean... Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a difficult thing to say, because obviously you're sort of criticising somebody else's product. I, well, I don't like doing it, but I think someone needs to raise awareness that it, it needs to be better. Most most people I've spoken to say they'll quite happily buy a copy of The Big Issue, but they'll never actually read it. It generally goes straight in the bin, and yeah. I think there's an opportunity wasted there. So do I. I think it could be char- they could charge £5. People would buy it. You know, £5 would be a better copy as well, you know? It does have many stories of of people who have been homeless and how they've managed to get out of that situation yeah. and all the help and the support that they need, but... I think most people, I wouldn't be far wrong, I think, if I said that most people who buy a copy of The Big Issue are not buying it because they want to find out more about homelessness as an issue. They're quite prepared to buy a copy of it, but what they do need is they need something inside that that actually captures their imagination or their attention in some way. I agree. So so they're getting value for money for the £3 that it costs. Exactly. But I do like the concept of it. And I know they're bringing in some sort of, um, I think it's like a cashless payment system and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, if you can can do that with this QR code reader that's, that's coming along, you know, everyone's phones, the newer ones, have actually got that installed already on those new phones. Yeah. So people can pay monthly, they can support this thing, and then actually the care worker can like what we're doing in Chichester, can actually dish out the money to things which they really need as opposed to them getting it in cash and wasting it, or in fact, not getting it in cash, because a lot of them are not going to get it, because people yeah. don't give it anymore. Yeah, I think I think the, the strongest aspect of that is the fact that the money that they do get, however much it is, is managed for them yeah. by somebody who's working on their behalf voluntarily. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, a, a social services care worker or the local vicar will actually yeah. control the account. After all, many people get into a situation where they become homeless for the pure and simple reason is that they're not very good 
at managing their money. Yeah. So the fact that somebody else will do that on their behalf means that, yes, you can't spend it on drink or anything else that, that, that would be considered to be wasted, but it also can be parceled out um, in a way in which it's doing the most benefit for the person who, who, who needs it. And although generally research tends to show that about 65, maybe 70% of homeless people aren't homeless because they're on drink or drugs. They're there because of other reasons. Um, it's quite often the fact that once you're living in a shop doorway, you tend to get whatever you can out of life because life doesn't offer you many opportunities. Right. And let's face it, who amongst us haven't felt better if they've had a drink in the evening. Obviously, the problem is if you take that to excess, and that's what this QR code thing could well do. It could yeah. manage that. Yeah. So it's not becoming part of the problem. It actually becomes a solution. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So what about your next adventure then, uh, Stephen? Have you got any plans for that yet? Or Because I know we were just talking the other day about some potential ideas. Do you think the audience might come up with some fancy ideas and send them in? Uh. Well, I'm open to suggestions. I mean, the the suggestions that I've got at the moment, the ideas that I've got is, um, for one thing, nobody's ever ridden from London to Rome on a penny farthing dressed in a suit of armour. I like that idea. Okay, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hot and sweaty. It's going to be fairly perilous. But I think once it's achieved that could be something that I can I, I can I can proudly say that um, I, I was a first. Wow. So so are you going to carry a sword with that or are you just wearing the armour? I think just the armour. I think really? the complications of carrying any kind of medieval weapon along across maybe three or four different European countries. <laughs> might, I don't think they mind. Might be a little bit tricky. Yeah. No. So, but riding, riding okay. to Rome on a penny farthing in a suit of armour could, could, be, could be one way to go. I've also, considering that most of these adventures uh, involve a, a different way of travel, the, the first one was walking on a pilgrimage, the second one was sailing in a coracle, the third one was on a space hopper. I was thinking maybe um, underwater, uh, there is a, a wreck at the bottom of the Hamble River near Southampton in the UK, the wreck of Henry V's flagship, the Grasse Dieu. Now, that's never been raised. It's still there on the bed of the river. And I thought of exploring that wreck in a medieval submarine made out of a waterproofed barrel, something that they used to actually do occasionally in the Middle Ages, which was basically just to jump overboard in a barrel and sink to the bottom of the river. And uh, I think I think I could do that. One one end of the barrel is left open, so you're basically wearing a very large wooden barrel-shaped helmet, and you sink down to the bottom of the river. You take a deep breath, you get out and have a look round, then you duck back into the barrel to take your next breath. I'd have about four minutes of air inside the barrel, and uh, I, th I think I could probably take a couple of photos with a waterproof camera in that time. If I did it in medieval costume, it would be even more authentic. It's not a bad idea, actually. Some friends of mine have got a distillery down near there. They just opened one, and it's based. You're saying on... I'm going to be drunk to do it. Well, they would probably give you a drink <laughs> afterwards, I would think. But they've got they've got a distillery. They've got the barrels. Yeah. No, it's on English heritage land. Actually, they're just about to put a um, put some sort of a, a bar in there and all sorts of stuff. They're making okay. rum, uh, so it would fit with the, with with the uh, with the theme. I would think. Actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the other plan is. Um, Exactly a thousand years ago, 
a chap called Aylmer of Malmesbury, a man that probably nobody has ever heard of, became the first Englishman to fly. He climbed to the top of Malmesbury Abbey Tower, about 80 foot up, with a pair of leather and wickerwork wings that he'd made, and he jumped off. And this was 50 years before the Norman Conquest. This was in 1018, 1019, somewhere around there. The records aren't completely clear, but it's a thousand years ago. 50 years before William the Conqueror turned up, this fellow jumped off the top of the spire of Malmesbury Abbey, and instead of just plummeting to the ground and becoming a a, a nasty-looking mark on the landscape, as you might expect, he, he flew 220 yards across Malmesbury, crashed into the roof of the local bakery, broke both his legs and fell to the ground. Now, breaking both your legs and falling to the ground, probably not a brilliant idea, but I thought to myself, if I can make a pair of medieval wings from wickerwork and leather, I could probably try and recreate that flight, albeit I can't find anywhere 80 foot up that will allow me to jump off. I have found a structure 40 foot up. And uh, the idea is that I could quite easily jump off the end of Bognor Pier into the water and then it wouldn't really matter whether I went down head first or, or, or actually managed to, to achieve some kind of distance because I'd be landing in the water. It's not a bad idea. What about a catapult? You could get catapulted <laughs> off of Bognor. <laughs> Maybe you could catapult Bognor off of Bognor. <laughs> well, I had at one point thought about a trebuchet, you know, a medieval siege engine. Maybe sitting in the sitting in the cup at the end of a large trebuchet and getting shot over some battlements or something. A bit like um, a man fired from a cannon in a in a, in a sort of circus type event. But, I quite like that idea, but do you think the police might stop you? Yeah, I think there might be a problem with that. P- plus the fact that there's no historical record of any living person being <laughs> shot from a trebuchet. So look, so basically, I would love to know, what what did your adventures teach you? Okay, so walking to Canterbury in the middle of winter, sleeping rough, sailing across Wales, bouncing over the Alps, it basically says that doesn't matter how crazy your idea is. Even if you're just an ordinary guy, and let's face it, I'm 55, I'm a little bit overweight, I'm not remarkable physically in any way. But you can achieve things that you would previously have thought were impossible if you've got the, shall we call it, ambition? Gumption? Bloody-mindedness? Stupidity? Whatever you want to call it, you can do these things. It takes a bit of planning. It takes a little bit of equipment, maybe. But it is achievable, and it means that if I can do it, then whatever crazy ideas you've got, you could do it too. I'm I'm thinking that, you know, when I'm 90 years old, if I'm lucky enough to live that long, and I'm looking back on my life, I'm not going to be thinking, I wish I'd spent some more time in the office behind a computer. I'm going to be thinking, you know what, I was the first person to bounce across one of the world's major mountain ranges on a child's toy. And those are the kinds of things that you're going to look back on when you're 90. It's not going to be how much money did I make, how many people did I have reporting to me, how many hours overtime did I do in the office behind the computer. It's, it's, it's the crazy stuff. And, and you can do it. You can get out there and you can do this kind of thing. It doesn't matter whether you're disabled. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter what kind of idea you've got in your head. This kind of thing is achievable. If I can do it, anybody can. And you learn some things as well. I mean, somebody said to me at the end of the very first trip, when I got to Canterbury, the BBC were there, 
they stuck a microphone under my under my chin and they said you know what did you learn from this trip and i and i thought to myself and i thought it's not the it's not the fact that i've done this journey it's not the fact of the history that i've learned along the way what i've learned from this particular journey and subsequently with the other ones is when you get out there and you're doing something daft people generally are on your side i don't have a television set and i don't read the newspaper because it's all doom and gloom i look in the news and all i see is problems but when you actually get out there in the community and you're doing even something as crazy as bouncing over the alps on a space hopper people go by with a huge smile on their face you leave them better than when you met them and do you know what when i did that first trip and i walked to canterbury it took me two and a half weeks and i never spent a penny every single time i tried to buy food somebody would ask me what i was doing i didn't beg for food i didn't ask for any money i didn't need it but every time i tried to pay for something there were four pubs along the way four medieval pubs that are still there from the middle ages and every time i got to one of these places and ordered some food you know what the landlord wouldn't take a penny people went out after talking to me with a huge grin on their face and the word started to spread i went from 12 comments on facebook to 182,000 all around the world people were coming back and saying that's a brilliant idea what a great thing to do and when i got to the end i thought you know what you give people a chance and they are better than you think the best example of that was i was walking through wales on the second pilgrimage on this journey with the boat on my back and a car full of skinheads young fellas about 22 years older came up with a screech of brakes leant out the window and i thought here we go i'm in trouble here and they said what are you doing you know you you you're dressed as a as a monk you're wearing what looks like a, a dress and you're carrying a boat and i explained to them i said you know i'm crossing wales in the same way that this guy did in the this some brendan did in the in the fifth century and um i expected abuse let's be honest anyway they said oh okay uh, and off they went with a roar of their uh, souped up ford cortina and there was me thinking you know i got away with that 10 minutes later about a couple of miles further on in the journey the same three fellas the same three skinheads covered in tattoos screeched to a stop leant out the window and handed me a ready meal a, 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 a mcdonald's happy meal basically said there you go son we uh, we have no idea what you're doing or why you must be mad but we thought anybody this crazy deserves a bit of support and they handed me a cup of coffee a big mac and some fries and with a big grin on their faces off they went and i thought that's brilliant you know these guys would probably have not got the time of day from anybody shall we say middle class um and there they were they'd driven off they'd found a fast food outlet and they'd come back and they'd found me and they'd give me a meal and uh, i thought that was brilliant people are better than you think if you give them a chance and i think that's why homelessness strikes a chord with me because people are better than you think they will help if they know what they can do and if you can screw your courage to the sticking point and actually go up to somebody who's homeless and ask them yes you might get a mouthful of abuse every now and then but you've got the chance to change somebody's life maybe only for a day but you've got the chance to make their day better
yeah. and to contribute to basically the overall happiness of the human race. And I think any chance of doing that is something that perhaps people ought to, to take. Yeah. Well, it might just be one word that you say to them that, you know, it might change their whole day. They might they might feel completely lost. They might be going to kill themselves. You don't know what's going on inside someone's brain no. yeah, until, until you approach them. And then if you leave them with a smile... That's sometimes all they need, which is going to yeah. take them through, you know. And You've left the world a slightly yeah. better place than when you first turned up. Exactly, you know. And, I mean, I've got, a, I've got a, uh, an acquaintance called Mike Tobin, OBE, and he, he founded the, the first CEO sleepout. And these guys go out, top CEOs, Barclays, you know, wherever else, and they go and they sleep out. I think it's in March, February or March. They sleep out in London on the streets. Rough times, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty tough, you know, and... But what was interesting was one of the CEOs came up to Mike afterwards and, and he said, you know, Mike, I really understand what it feels like to be to be homeless. Yeah. And and, you know, and Mike just sort of looked at him and he said, well, actually, you don't really because you knew when it was going to end. Yeah. And yeah. these people, they don't know when it's going to end. Yeah. yeah. And 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 I think the more the more things that happen throughout the UK and throughout the world, there are many many organisations that, that help the homeless. The more things that happen and the more stuff that we do to pull together, yeah, the better we're going to leave people. And that's that's in essence what we want to do. Like that's the whole purpose of my podcast is to leave people with more information and inspiration than they had before right and that's it you know yeah yeah, yeah. so you might you might i'm not an eloquent speaker i can't i can't uh, claim any sort of uh, skills in that direction but if you can leave any situation with people feeling slightly better about themselves then then you've done a good job you just don't know how much that might mean to the person that you've that you've just helped even if all you've done if you've got nothing in your pocket that you can give them even if all you've done is give them a five-second conversation, yeah. a five-minute chat, a little bit of human contact. One fellow said to me, you know what? He said a lot of homeless people get a lot of criticism because they leave rubbish behind. But think about it. If the community that you're living in won't even look at you as they walk past, what possible incentive have they got to keep themselves tidy and uh, to, to keep the, wherever they are sleeping? tidy because they've got no they've got no connection with that area if you can stop and talk to somebody if you can help them out then they'll have something of a, a link with that area and they'll start to feel that they're part of society again the worst thing about being homeless is that you don't feel that anybody cares and you're not part of anything so um you know it might be a a simple hello from a pretty girl as they walk past first thing in the morning might be the best thing that's happened to that person all week. Who yeah. knows? Yeah, yeah. So you are currently studying a degree in history, and you're, you're going to take that somewhere. You, you, uh, you a PhD. Think? I'm doing. A, I'm doing a PhD. I used to be a, a physics teacher, science teacher. Um, I was always better at science, but I was more interested in history. So um, just at the moment, I'm I'm looking at some of these adventures as a sort of background research in a way for my for my right. history PhD. I'm studying um, socially mobile and geographically mobile groups of the late Middle Ages. I know that sounds immensely boring, but we're talking about pilgrims, peddlers, uh, costermongers, travelling stonemasons. Any any group in the Middle Ages that actually got about a bit, because most people stayed fairly 
static in one place most of the time. Um, and as part of that, I've been doing these pilgrimages, these long walks and um, exploratory journeys to try and find out how people lived when they had no base, basically, to, to base themselves from. Middle Ages wasn't a great time to be mobile because you were always looked at with some suspicion by whatever community that you moved into. Of course. Um, of course. A bit like homeless people are today. And, and there's a little bit of there's a bit of a parallel there, you know. Yeah. A, a homeless person turning up for the first time in an area is not going to be welcomed with open arms, just the same way that a traveller in the Middle Ages would would be viewed with a great deal of suspicion until they found out exactly why they were there and what they were after. Yeah, of course, of course. So how do people find you then, uh, Stephen, if they want to get a hold of you? Uh, well, I've got a, I've got a Facebook site. Uh, it's called Pilgrim's Progress, and the picture associated with that is a, a woodcut of a, a pilgrim walking along, but... My name, Stephen Payne, Stephen with a V, P-A-Y-N-E, uh, my personal page. People are welcome to, um, to, to to friend me there and see what I'm doing. Uh, crazy adventures are coming to mind all the time. So, you know, I've mentioned a few of them, but it, it could be something completely different. If you've got an idea, if you think nobody's ever done this before, give me a shout and um, maybe I'll give it a go. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time and thanks to everyone for listening. Really appreciate it iTunes or wherever you listen really appreciate that very much so thanks so much for listening please subscribe and wherever you prefer share with your friends and if you enjoyed the show drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen this podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.